Hi. I'm Grace. I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Indeed. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. This week, The King of Atolia by Megan Whalen Turner, whose name I heard pronounced Megan Wallen Turner recently, and that inspired a great deal of dread in me. So I'm sorry if we've been mispronouncing it for three episodes now. We do have two other episodes on the preceding books in this series, the Queen's Thief series. Um, Those books are The Thief and The Queen of Atolia. And if you haven't read those books, this episode is going to be pretty confusing. I did read those books and I still don't really understand the plot of this (laughs) book. I'm so sorry. No, no, I... You know, we have been covering this series at a pace of one a year at the holiday that's, season that's for whatever problem. reason. So that um, it, like they have faded from memory enough. Yeah. And it is a series that was new to us. We do typically reread books that we loved when we were younger, but this was recommended by a few listeners and we loved The Thief so much that we just had to keep going. Um, and I've yeah been very happy to do so, but it means that some of the details are not totally indelible in our minds um, and we may muddle things a little bit. So please forgive us in advance. And I, I in general, I have trouble following... Um, fantasy political intrigue like I just it doesn't get stuck in my head very well for some reason my brain turns up the rushing ants sound when the political intrigue starts just kind of glosses it over well and like we've discussed in our other episodes covering this series Megan Whalen Turner purposefully confuses the reader yes um, especially with regards to eugenides and his aims and his true motives. Um, and she uses uh, difficult perspectives yeah. and cuts away from conversations at key moments and only provides little snippets. Yeah. Um, and all of that is very effective in yeah. leaving the reader, like the main character of this book, Costas, desperately struggling to understand exactly Exactly. What's going on? Yeah, most of this book is told through the perspective of someone who's feeling jerked around and or confused. It's really funny. And an underling, someone with very little power, um, someone who has, yeah, a relatively low station, all things considered, but has suddenly been given a glimpse into the lives and worlds of the king and queen. It's a unique... um, position for the narrative to be told from. And Costas is kind of a perfect character to use for this because he himself is very transparent mm-hmm. in every yeah. possible way. Yeah. And he can't really maintain any kind of like sutter- subterfuge or intrigue. Um, and yeah. I appreciate him for that. Yeah. He's, he's an honest guy. He's very like pure and mm. forthright. So this book was published in 2006. Um, The series began in 1996 with The Thief and the books have been published at, you know, a modest pace. Um, The most recent one, A Conspiracy of Kings, which I believe is the final book in the series. Um, Okay, so it's a, a... Quartet. Quart- a quadrangle. A quadrangle. <laughs> as we prefer to call them, a quadrangle. I was going to say a quangle, um, <laughs> which is the shortened form of that. Uh, it just came out in 2010. Um, okay. And 
uh, nope, there's another book after that. I really struggle with this series. It's, it's not a long. quadrangle. It's a quindrangle. Quintangle? <laughs> <A> quintangle. <laughs> Which just came out in 2017. So, uh, and there's another book after that, but it looks like it maybe hasn't come out yet. Uh, anyway, okay. so you know, she's still writing them. as long as she's publishing these, I'll keep following along because I love this series. And this book was a really funny one, um, because not a lot happens yeah. in it, especially compared to the first two books in the series where we're dealing with in the first, this like very mysterious, um, significant theft, like a heist that's being carried out throughout the book. And the second is and the, it's a- the edge of war. Right. So the the first one is a very traditional hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of twists in it and there's subterfuge still, but it it like it follows that you know, that kind of linear like we got there's a MacGuffin, mm-hmm. got to get the thing <laughs> yeah. and we're uh, we're in a fellowship. My thesis gift. Yeah. Um and this one is very not that. I agree it is very not that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's what you come to Dragon Babies for, that kind of <laughs> lyricism. Poignant <laughs> prose. <laughs> so we do thoroughly spoil every book that we cover, at least to the best of our abilities, since clearly we're still in the dark on some things here. Um, so if you haven't read it before, or haven't visited it in a while, uh, go and check it out and then hurry back. Yeah. We, as mentioned, um, oh, where did my book go? Here it is. Uh, I have a physical copy of this book for the first time in, God, I mean, most of the episodes we've done since COVID hit. Um, you get it from to, the library? Yes, I can pick things up from the library now sometimes with a scheduled appointment do, do one day sp- a week. Do they spray it? <laughs> no. Could be a fomite. <laughs> you check it out online essentially and then they give it to you once you get there i think it's probably fine um but uh it's just so exciting to be able to get a book from the library i was literally texting my friends about how excited i was and i think you know just a quick side note it's important to imbue every experience that you have right now with as much joy as possible and i'm trying to really celebrate these little moments like being able on a Saturday morning when it's not raining, which for this Seattle December is a feat. A um, walk to the library, check out a book, bring it home and sit down and read it, which is yeah. something I took for granted. Um, yeah, I uh, I talk about grocery stores a lot. They It's kind of a don't know what you've got till it's gone situation. Mm-hmm. Um but I, paradise put up a parking exactly <laughs> exactly with the little sad tree yeah. um ghost of a tree i think that you drew yeah my yeah. high school art depicting it. the Joni mitchell song i was texting everyone that i knew uh celebrating the fact that i'd gone to the grocery store alone and gotten a full load of groceries for the first time in 10 plus months and i didn't have a meltdown over it which was a win. Usually yeah. that like even going with Nick is so stressful that I'm like yeah. in tears by the end of it. <laughs> so yeah. that's where I'm at. No, I mean, that's great. Honestly, that's huge. And I think yeah. it's really important that we give these little accomplishments and these little 
moments um, the attention that they deserve. Yeah, if you're if you're not American, then you're probably just like, what are they on about? Yeah, we <laughs> took care of this um, months ago, a while ago. Yeah, yeah, a YouTube channel that we both love, How to Cook That, with Anne Reardon. She's Australian. Um, she's right? in Australia, yeah. where. Y'all have taken care of it. Yeah. COVID is under control. Yeah. Um, and she had put up a very cute Christmas video. I highly recommend this channel if, like me, you're obsessed with food. Um, and since you're here, you probably yeah, share yeah, at least some of that. have some of that love. Um, she's a food scientist and makes really, really amazing videos. She's very smart, very talented. Yeah, I like um, her cooking videos and her, like, fun critique. Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, like she takes down dangerous videos. hacks yeah. um, from <laughs> content farms and yeah. yeah just overall a great channel um but she just put up a video where her husband goes out to parks and is asking people what they think they know about like the history of gingerbread houses because that's <laughs> what they're making and i was just watching dumbstruck as strangers yeah come together to speak in a park and like speak into a little microphone and it just feels like watching a different world um while we in our country are continuing to outpace our daily covid cases and death toll um so yeah okay getting grim (laughs) we haven't even started really talking about the book yet uh but i guess all i wanted to say is that I appreciate being able to hold this book right now. Yeah. And that's really giving me a lot. So. And uh, Grace and I uh, share a quarantine bubble. So I appreciate that we're able to mm-hmm. still be in the same place to record these because I just don't think it would work to record like in separate yeah. places from each other. For sure. Um, Lots of podcasters are able to make that work, but we don't have like a rotating cast or even guests. Yeah. So it's kind of important to maintain like the the same energy <laughs> agree. Yeah. and I really yeah. appreciate that too yeah, yeah can be so. in a little room together with a cat asleep on a chair there's two cats in here I think it's true <laughs> so from my library copy um the cover is the same motif that's being used um for the other books in this series um we have a marble backdrop that i feel is immediately backdrop backdrop (laughs) that i feel is immediately hearkening to the um, byzantine type era and there are little wooden cutouts of figures um in the foreground set against little slate gray hills and then a wooden reproduction of i think the garden where eugenides um is almost assassinated um and i really like this design uh i think these covers are while they're, they're pretty and just like the design is pleasing to the yeah. eye, it's not yeah. excessive. They're very streamlined. Um, and I think they do a pretty good job of communicating that this is a, a Greek sort of like ancient Greek ish era fantasy political mystery drama type book. It has a little bit of a Song of Ice and Fire vibe in that it's like politics, mm-hmm. different kingdoms fighting each other but firmly set in ancient greece as opposed to in a more traditional like swords and dragons yeah um, modern fantasy setting so i like it and uh it's a good cover with that madeline would you like to take on the task of providing a plot summary i'm gonna keep it like 
pretty simple here. Short and sweet. Yeah, because oof. Um it's really um like we mentioned there's only a few key plot events that really go down yeah. a lot. Um, a lot of the important parts of the book are really in the way that people are talking to each other and in the gradual development of Eugenides and Atolia's relationship. And there's like big revelations about very small events that turned mm-hmm. out to mean some uh, much bigger thing in the context of the narrative, but like seemed like just weird one-off asides at the time. There's a ton of that, not only in this book, but in all of her books. Yeah. Um, but so I found this hilarious cause I was looking for summaries, which helps um, no good summaries for this book. The <laughs> Wikipedia one's better than this one I found. But after the summary on this allreaders.com site, it then goes into Plot and themes, including the percentage of different, like, okay, descriptions of chases or violence, 10%. Planning slash preparing, gathering information, debating puzzles and motives, 30%. (laughs) Feelings, relationships, character bio slash development, 40%. (laughs) How do they quantify this? Tone of book, cynical or dry wit. Oh my God, I have to go to this website. I want this for every book I ever yeah, read. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great. Uh, main character. Although I don't know if I agree with the percentages. Well, the, the under main character, one of the things it says, really unusual traits dash super genius. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I guess is one way of looking Describing at eugenities. Like abilities to get out of things. <laughs> But it's not like a traditional intelligence. I think it's I think it's, like, it's more of um, a like God touched figure. His seemingly superhuman abilities are that the gods are on his side, especially the god of the thieves. Then it says setting, and it says takes place on Earth? Question mark. <laughs> yes, and then planet outside solar system. Yes, <laughs> which is confusing. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> I can't believe I've never come across this site before. Well, yeah. Yeah. All readers. Allreaders.com. Okay. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So in this book, Eugenides has married the Queen of Atolia. And uh, plot wise. cut off his hand in the previous book. Yeah. And you you don't find this out until three-fourths of the way through the book. But they are like friends and in love and on the same side. But for mm-hmm. most of the book, it seems like it is not going well because it's not told through either of those characters' perspectives. Like Grace was talking about earlier, it's told through um, Costas's perspective. And he doesn't know much because he's a guard. Um, and uh, what he does observe uh, after being assigned uh, and the king kind of he forms a special relationship with him because Costas hits the king in yes. the face. He hits the king in the <laughs> face after. Okay. So the, the book starts That's the out. inciting event. Yeah. When, um, Eugenides has goaded, uh, Costas into hitting him in the face because he's like making fun of the captain of the guard. Um, and so Costas starts out the book, assuming that he's going to be executed for smashing the King one in the face. 
Um, but instead he gets brought like into the fold. Um, but it's not really like, it seems like a good thing. He's given a fancy new position and like technically he's like on paper, what Mm -hmm. happens to him is good, but the problem is it's it's more important in his environment that he like have the trust and acceptance of his fellow comrades yeah. um, and they start to suspect him when like just be suspicious of him because Eugenides no one likes him. Yeah. No one likes him because he's a foreigner um, and they see and him like loved to essentially pull one over yes. on the queen mm-hmm. um, before they were wed. Mm-hmm. And in the first book, that entire book centers around him stealing something that she desperately wants. Yeah. So traditionally, historically, they've had a, a rough relationship. And now all of his like his servants are all playing pranks on him nonstop, um, including ultimately trying to kill him. Um, but that was unrelated. Um, the other piece is that Costas feels isolated throughout the book, not just from his fellow guards and soldiers, but also um, from the king because he feels like the king is always laughing at him and making fun of him and that he put him in that position to punish him yes, so that every day he could just use him as a sort of whipping boy. Yes. Um, Which is not what's happening. And there is intrigue with, the Baron Arondites, the Baron Arondites, um, and uh, the Baron Arondites is one of the Queen's barons. They're a big problem. They're like the high-ranking nobles mm-hmm. that have a lot of power, and that like is a strain between the crown and its power and the barons and their power. Um, and that's they're a- like the Senate that we're going to be heading into. In the Biden presidency, as yes. it currently stands. Yeah. Um, it's not conducive to good governance. The Baron Arondites and his two sons are involved in a plot against the crown. They're trying to power grab. Um, and then you also have as characters Relius, who's the queen's um, master of... I think technically his title is Secretary of the Archive, which okay. also kind of translates to like spy master. Yeah, he is like yeah. a spy master. Um, and uh, then also Nehusaresh is coming up, who is a Mede. He's from the Mede Empire. He was the Mede ambassador to Atolia, who yeah. during the last book two was trying to act like he wanted, like he was interested in the Queen of Atolia romantically. Yeah. And then she was pretending to be enamored with him. Yeah. And in so the that end, was all the song they, and dance. Yeah. He betrayed her, obviously, but they were like ready to double betray. So that's part of what led to mm-hmm. her marrying Jen. Eugenides. Yes. Um, and uh, Eugenides ends up, there's an assassination attempt on his life. Um, and that's when things come into focus more, mm-hmm. like concerning what's actually happening. Because mm-hmm. before that point, we just see Eugenides like being a heel, um, being depressed and not really doing anything. And when people play pranks on him, he's just like, oh, it just totally, whatever. yeah, he cynically ignores it. Um, and he, he like, does a bad job, but purposefully when he is like doing practice 
sparring matches. And when the queen is doing um, ruler things, he like just is there kind of disinterested, not helping at all. Um, And uh, so... But he's listening. He is listening. And when there's an assassination attempt, um, then... uh, uh, Eugenides is the one who dispatches the assassins, and that becomes a point of, uh, like, just another thing that separates Costas from his uh, colleagues, uh, his fellow guardsmen, because they assume that the king is lying in saying that mm-hmm. he took them out because he only has one hand, and, like, they just assume that that, you know, shyster would uh, do something as um, just bad faith as Mm. claiming he defeated assassins when he didn't. Um, But he did. Uh, And then the son of the Baron Arondites is uh, punished. Um, Like he plays the brothers against each other, basically, uh, which helps to take away the Baron, like some of the Baron Arondites' power. Then we actually see the king and queen being affectionate with each other. We start learning more and more about what's actually going on. Um, We spend some time with Edis as well, who is just kind of on the periphery, like making commentary about like, oh, Eugenides is pretending to be a buffoon. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's, he's purposefully coming across as weaker than he is. Uh, and he's refusing to interfere with matters of the state um, because he feels he's not worthy, doesn't want to. Um, and throughout war is brewing with the Mede Empire. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they, I think at one point the Queen of Atolia says that like when Eugenides is accepted as king, then uh, like the war will really blossom. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're like, she's trying to put that off while he comes to grips. Um, with this new thing that he like really doesn't feel comfortable with. He says that it's the only mess he's ever gotten himself into that he can't get out of, which, oh, buddy, I feel you. Um, (laughs) So like, that's really scary. Uh, But his God basically tells him to stop being a whiny baby. (laughs) One Um, of the, there are a lot of, LOL moments in this book, but one of my favorites is when Eugenides is saying to Costas, what was that beautiful line that the gods said to like this great hero before battle? And what was it that they said to this Stop other hero? Stop being a baby. And he's like, well, what do they say to me? Go to bed. Stop whining. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is literally what the god like appears and says to him when he almost drunkenly steps off of a castle wall. Of a yeah. Um, and uh, like Costas has gone up there to just be like, dude, go to bed. <laughs> like, I want to go to bed. So Costas does everyone is else. so tired throughout the whole book yeah. because Eugenides will never chill. Yeah. Um, Okay. Did you mention the, I don't think you mentioned the assassination attempt, which is probably the biggest thing that happens. Can you talk more about it? Mm -hmm. My, my memory about it is like fuzzy. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so there've been a few thwarted, more violent pranks that, Mm -hmm. um, different members of the King's attendants led by Sejanus, the Baron Arendite's more difficult son, um, has attempted. And then, one is almost successful 
when they they keep letting the dogs out into the courtyard, the hunting dogs, which, yeah, keeps causing problems predictably. Maybe get, um, get a dog run. And know. he does that to distract the guards so that the king is left alone in the garden, which they think is well protected. But assassins appear and three assassins appear and attempt to kill Eugenides. Mm-hmm. Um, and he uses his hook on his missing hand to kill them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's only because Costas realized that he was left alone in that garden and runs to it that he is able to see what actually happened um, and that people have more an idea of the fact that the king is actually highly competent, even with one hand. Yeah, it doesn't matter that Um, he only has one hand. And uh, that he's not as sluggish and um, unaware as everyone thinks. He's actually in tip-top shape, and that's why he's wearing all those uh, moo-moos. Yes, he wears, <laughs> he wears coats with long sleeves to uh, hide his hand um, or his missing hand. And also uh, his muscles. And that's But also how yeah. strong he is. It's just um, like the, the Ice King in Adventure Time. I feel like I bring up Adventure Time as often as I bring up Zelda. Probably. It's very important to yeah, me. Probably. Yeah. Um, but even that is turned into gossip that... Costas and Talaeus are actually the ones who killed the assassins um, because the king couldn't possibly be able to handle that himself. Um, mm-hmm. But he's also pretty badly wounded during that fight. Um, yeah. So that's that's probably the the biggest like plot event that happens during the book because that kind yeah. of turns the tables in that that shows that the king and the queen do love each other. Um, and it shows that Eugenides actually is powerful and is capable. And I think it's shortly before that, that we get our first glimpse of Eugenides actually sneaking around the palace. I checked it because I was really surprised that it took so long. I think it was on like page 130 um, that we see him spying on the Baron Arondites and Sejanus. Okay. Um, whispering about how they have this plan to try to get him to take a specific mistress that they chose yeah. who will then convince him to fill the guard and his attendants with people that they control yeah. so they can have as much power over the queen and the king and, as possible. And Eugenides' whole deal is that he wants to reduce the guard to prevent things like that. Yeah, he wants to defund the police. Yeah. <laughs> they do so by half by the end of the book. Ah, it's a confusing parable if it's an instructions as as to how to defund the police. Yeah, that's yeah, true. <laughs> um, yeah, so I thought that that was one of the, the more important things that did happen in a book that is mostly like quiet conversations and thoughtful reminiscences Um, ruminations ruminations thank you so the other important event i would say because it brings up a lot of eugenity's past trauma and the way that he actually wants to rule as a king and kind of starts making him be a king um is that relius the secretary of the archives who we mentioned is kind of the queen's spy master and who has been in the series before um, and tortured eugenides when he was in their prison. Yeah. There's so much weird, like bad vibes, 
It's yeah, like, it's just like, moments of, hey, remember when we were in this prison and I was torturing you? Now the shoe's on the other foot. But that's what these types of series tend to be like because power shifts, alliances shift, and, and you're like, on the bottom and then you're on the top. You want to keep the same characters because you've already put a lot of effort yes. into making them into realistic characters. And, yeah. yeah. And Relius is truly... I think the only person that the queen has trusted for so much of her rule. And Mm. he's a key figure because he shows us the way that she's changing too, because with Eugenides as her king, she doesn't have to be as ruthless and prone to just torturing and executing everybody who doesn't do exactly what she wants to maintain her power. Yeah. Because it's, much less tenuous now she is settled in the throne because she has a king um and she can also she doesn't have to be merciless Mm -hmm. in the way that she has had to be since she took the throne when she was very young we learned a lot about that in the second book um but uh he somewhat accidentally betrays her um it seems like it's unintentional. Yeah, it seems like he just like he wasn't being did a bad job. careful yeah. because he was, I think, spending time with a woman who turned out to be a spy for the Mede Emperor. Okay, um, I believe that's what happened, but it's like a remember. really quick mention, and we yeah. never really go back to it. And the Queen has decided, okay, put him in the dungeon, torture him, and then execute him. Um, but Eugenides pardons him Mm -hmm. and then after pardoning him um, like goes and sits with him every night and helps like mentally nurse him back to health. Yeah. There's, there's a real uh, like interesting, uh, uh, like the rehabilitation Mm -hmm. of characters relationships in not Mm -hmm. just this book, but the series Mm -hmm. is like a core uh, theme. Yeah, definitely. Um, And there is sort of this, movement toward trust as opposed to a movement toward like cynicism and independence. Exactly. People are coming together rather than fragmenting. And Eugenides. Which is very interesting. Yeah. And he's getting over his desire to put his independence over his like duties. Yeah. And also, um, I mean, we talked about the issues with their marriage a lot during our Queen of Atolia episode, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to rehash all of that here, but succinctly, he is married to the person who cut his hand off. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that's really complicated, like y'all. A lot of stuff <laughs> to unpack there. Yeah. It's really a lot. Um and she is the the way that a few times he gets her to understand why he thinks people should be pardoned, not just Relius, but also Talaeus, the captain of the guards, um, is by reminding her that he did that or that yeah, she did yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, and that that was a mistake and something that she regrets now. Um, but because she's in this new place of um, just like greater comfort or just safety she's in a safer place she's in a safer place Um, where she feels more comfortable like doing what she wants as opposed to what she has to do yeah yeah um she's able to actually show that mercy um and there's a really touching scene between her and Raelius in the infirmary um where she finally goes and talks to him after he's been recovering um Mm. from being in the prison uh and you know she says 
like you made me this way, which is true because he, he raised her. He wanted her to ways. be able to make it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they... And her court is not a nice place. Like, it's well established. No, yeah, really not good um, in big and small ways. Yeah. <laughs> It's very um, brutal. It's a very brutal place. Yeah. yeah. So so by the end of the book, Eugenides has shown that not only does he want to be king, which he openly admits when he says that's the second part of that line about I've never been able to not get out of a mess, but now I realize that if they take it away from me, I'm actually going to miss it. Yeah. Um, so not only does he want to be king, but he is king. He mm-hmm. can do it um, both physically and mentally and with his fortitude. Yeah. And then we basically end the book on the eve of war. Yeah, and there's like a, a fight that has a... Eugenides gets into like sparring matches with a bunch of the members of his guard and it culminates in like them understanding his strength and like coming around to trust him. So uh, one of the people he ends up fighting is a guard soldier fighter by the name of Laectamon. Yeah, he's one of Eris's guard. Okay. Um, and uh, Costas is freaking out because he's like, oh, he Laectamon's probably in the employ of the Baron Arendites and uh, he's uh, going to uh, get in this fight not to spar but to kill Eugenides. Um and he does get Eugenides in a position where he could kill him. Uh, but then Eugenides catches his sword with his hand. Because it's a wooden practice sword. Yeah. And then he uh, um, he wins. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline just waved it there around her head as if to say, don't worry about it. <laughs> he, he ends up winning the fight. And so, like, he goes back and forth with Talaeus over like, well, did you actually win? But it's cute. And and it's also commentary on Edician customs versus, versus Atolian customs yeah. because mm-hmm. the uh, Laectamon is taunting him during the fight and says, you know, you handle your sword as if it's just a practice sword. And here we believe that every weapon is a real weapon. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and and then uh, Eugenides says, "Well, in Edis, we believe that the real weapon is whatever weapon you're holding." Well, yeah, he's he's like he snarkily Which says, pretty, "Pretty cool, you know, we cool guy. we can tell what weapon we're using at the time, and we treat it like that." Like he's being like, "You're stupid," but in a loving way. <laughs> <laughs> it's banter. <laughs> Um, yeah. So again, just some of the tension between uh, this person who is trying to rule over a court that he is very unfamiliar with because he's from a very different kingdom. Yeah. So is that the end? <laughs> yeah. Think? Yeah. 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 And then and like I said, we end on the brink of war. Yes. Yeah. It's um it's an interesting place to end a book. But I guess then the next book will probably be like a war book. I imagine so. Because yeah, yes. Megan This uh, book is is Eugenides coming of king story yeah and she does um the author does write battles and just like fighting well so that's what i would expect but i don't know so we've already discussed a lot of different feelings that we had about the book um but just to sum up our overall um impressions let's let's do that um 
I can say that better. <laughs> so we already talked a bit about um, some different specific feelings we had about the book. Um, but in lieu of old and new impressions, when we, which we do when we've reread a book, mm-hmm. um, let's just talk a little bit about our overall impressions of the book. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed reading this. It was very... I appreciated how subtle a lot of the different communications of motives and feelings were yeah, and how so much is said just with a glance or a small touch. Um, And I do think that the thing that I had the biggest problem with coming out of book two, which is Eugenides and Atolia's marriage. Their like relationship. Yeah. Like Irene the, is her name. <laughs> which is really funny. Uh, but the Queens go by the name of their kingdoms in this series. Um, I do think that Megan Whalen Turner did a good job of making it feel like something we could understand. It's more believable. Um, Yeah. And feel a bit more okay with. Yeah. Um, Still complicated. Yeah. Still, still a little concerning, but you know, Um, and there's this dark line that runs through the book um, where the, the, King Eugenides tells someone that the Queen of Atolia cried on their wedding night. Yeah. And you don't really know what that means. But then at the end of the book, he says, like, well, I did throw an ink pot at her or something like that. And they're like, was that why she cried? And he's like, no, I didn't aim very well. <laughs> yeah. They, and it's like, again, just like a kind of silly, farcical thing. Because a lot about Eugenides, he tries to make humorous, both yeah. to throw people off and because I genuinely think he enjoys just like cutting up. I think so too. Um, yeah. And he's constantly calling Costas the dude without a sense of humor, um, which I think he dislikes for multiple reasons, partly <laughs> just because he wants someone to trade these little barbs yeah with. he needs someone to banter with yeah him. to bounce bounce all his little witticisms off of and when two of his mate i can't remember if they're his cousins but his kinsmen from edis come i think they're his cousins um, i think he says and that. they're making fun of oron that's his name right the ambassador mm-hmm. um yeah from edis uh and that's when Costas sees Eugenides actually like yeah letting his guard down and laughing in a way that he typically does not um yeah so I really appreciate getting to see their relationship grow they're both like very broken people who have been through a lot, a lot. Yeah. um and also seeing the way that Eugenides is able to move on from some of his trauma from being imprisoned and having his hand cut off. And I like the messages that the book has about having a disability. Yeah. um, Because he does face a lot of prejudice from the others. Everybody's a huge jerk about it. Even though they know that he was the most accomplished thief in in their world like in their realm of the world yeah and they They think of him as oh well he lost a hand so now he can't do anything yeah it's it's dumb the way they underestimate him yeah it's it's truly ridiculous and i think it's a combination of them seeing him as like physically broken and also spiritually broken Mm -hmm. um but it's just really absurd the extent to which they believe that yeah, but he does and like he play it up. up to no, he he does play it up, edge. but they never should have 
they never should have gone there in the first place. But but that's this series. Like Eugenides tricks people. That's just his way. Who he is. Trixie. And there are very few people that can see through that. And I think that's one reason why he ultimately loves the Queen of Atolia because she does see him. Yeah. As opposed to like his titles or his affect or whatever. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is just that I, like I mentioned, I think it was really smart to use Costas as the, uh, I mean, he's the protagonist, not Eugenides, as allreaders.com would have you believe. Yeah. No, it's true. But we also get to see someone who has real, um, uh, sorry, I'm looking for consequences for doing something, right. um, that might put him out of favor with the queen. Uh, it would cause his father to lose his land and his family and to fall into ruin and disgrace and possibly be exiled. Um, and he is, like I mentioned, not in a high position really to begin with. Yeah. Um, but through <laughs> a series of weird events and also slapping the king in the face, yeah. he his station does rise, but throughout he remains very committed to taking care of the people that he's supposed to take care of, even the king who he hates. Yeah. He deeply hates him yeah. um, to the point of striking him. And yet at multiple points through the book is sprinting to try to save him from whatever fate is about to befall him. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately he has a deep respect for him, but that takes a, a long time and almost to the very end of the book. Yeah. And he's just an interesting lens to see all these much more sophisticated machinations <laughs> take place <through>. exactly <laughs> um, because he's a simple guy and he's doing his best to figure it out yeah which that like we're saying is just a very fun lens so madeline what are your impressions um and first i was actually i guess for a lack of a better word annoyed um that <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's i it was very silly of me to forget <laughs> That uh, Megan Whalen Turner does this in this series of mm-hmm. like giving you uh, vantage points from different people's eyes and mm-hmm. uh, only giving you like little pieces of the full story and like very important clues that just seem like normal things that happened. Um, I, for the first few hours I was listening to it, I wasn't like keeping track of those and adding those up, mm-hmm. uh, which was silly because then um at the assassination attempt when everything just kind of flips then i was like oh right like <laughs> these these stories are well put together um so, so I, you forgot about eugenity's tricksy ways i figured that he had a plan but i was also in particular annoyed at him because i at first without understanding his motivations i i really like found uh, um costas's and the other guards' ruminations on him, like, convincing. Because I was like, what is he doing? And <laughs> we've seen Eugenides be depressed before. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking about during the Queen of Atolia when he uh, turns to alcoholism. Yeah. After his hand is cut off. Yeah. So I was like, wait, this is another Eugenides is depressed story. Mm-hmm. Like, I want, I want to see the stuff. Um, and I do think that this is a, it's more of a middle book than mm-hmm. um, the others that we've read so far because like big pivotal things happen in those books. Mm-hmm. And in this book, it's about like 
stage setting a lot of it is for yeah. the big battle that seems like it's going to come. Um, but I, I feel like by halfway through the book, I totally switched my perspective and then I was on the ride. But before mm -hmm. then I was just kind of grumpy about <laughs> what's happening in this book. Barely anything. <laughs> That's true. And there's also a lot of focus paid to court life. Mm -hmm. Um, and We've covered a few books that focus more on, you know, the goings on of the nobility mm -hmm. than um, what's happening, you know, on the battlefield. Like um, Court Duel. Yeah. So we didn't actually read we Court Duel. We didn't do Court Duel. We, we just did Crown Duel. Duel. Yeah. <laughs> I read Court Duel afterwards because that I was like, I want the romance story. <laughs> Little Madeline is coming out again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Make them kiss. Um yeah, but the Megan Whalen Turner is such a good author for that type of story yeah. because she does intrigue so well, and and the characters the having secrets and like we were saying earlier, um, so much being communicated in like a single tap or a glance, right? In important things, mm -hmm. that's you can't in this just, environment where everything's magnified, right? So you can't just ignore those. Which I just figured that it was all just happening and you know wasn't really sure what we were supposed to be looking for and then for some reason that kicked back in with me and then I was very much on the hook but I I mean I missed Eugenides like he was mm -hmm. just being a bummer <laughs> I wanted him to do something yeah I I was ruminating on the fact that in the first three books of this series so far we don't really get all that much time seeing Eugenides for who he truly is mm -hmm. because for yeah. the majority of the first book, the thief, he is pretending to be an idiot, like a hired hand right. um, on this quest to steal Hamiathes' gift. Um, in Queen of Atolia, we do see more of him, but then he's tortured and his hand is cut off. Mm -hmm. So then he plunges into that depression that we mentioned. Yeah, and under extreme duress is not really like a time when you get to know how someone normally is. <laughs> no, but but I think this also makes him work as a sort of, like you were saying at the beginning, a superhuman character because it would be exhausting if we were seeing all the time, like, he's endlessly clever, he's endlessly quick, he can mm. do anything. It because would, he I feel would like just it would be, just get old. He would be overpowered. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> it's like a superhero, a superhero movie yeah. where... Um, or like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where um, Captain, oh God, I just forgot her name. The character that Brie Larson plays, Captain Marvel. Oh, yeah. Um, has to be like dispensed Away. with. Yeah, because she's, because she's way too OP. She <laughs> is just going to do whatever she needs to do and conflicts will be smashed yeah <laughs> instantly yeah um but you know this in narrative form is <laughs> mm -hmm. what we're dealing with with eugenides that is a very good point that you have to keep the uh, very powerful uh, character out of play mm -hmm. otherwise it's just going to be non-stop amazing amazing well right <laughs> and in this case it's the extra charismatic character mm -hmm. um the yeah. one who yeah it's so tantalizing when we do get glimpses of his full potential, mm -hmm. um, whether it's his wit or his thieving abilities um, or his fighting, his physical prowess, mm -hmm. um, his problem solving. Um, so we're really left wanting more. And I feel like we're still getting to know him three books in, which in a series this long um, works really well. Yeah. And I do 
at the end of it, I do feel that we got to know him more during mm-hmm. this book. Like there was some good character development. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like the most about it is it's a uh, tale about uh, gaining others' trust. Like that's what he is trying to do. Um so it makes sense that we would get to see a little bit more of him as other people get to know him. So do we. I also, I felt so bad for Costas because I know. none of this was his fault. And then like all of his friends start making fun of him. And I was like, no, it's not his fault. <laughs> Costas gets the short end of the stick in this book again and again. Um, and even once he has formed some sort of relationship with eugenides it's still a like master and servant type role the the roles of like their class roles are very obvious yeah class is i don't know both like flexible and firm in this book there is the threat of like your lands can be taken away from you and your family in an instant Mm -hmm. and there also is up a fair amount of upward mobility um, and you can tell that both Eugenides and Atolia value loyalty more than they do like, breeding upbringing or wealth or station mm-hmm. um, yeah. Relius is the perfect example of that where he is someone who Atolia like met in the streets mm-hmm. um, and went on to become the secretary of the archives um, so yeah, there's, there is some flexibility there, but, but of course Costas is terrified at all times that the, uh, you know, somewhat impulsive actions that he takes at moments throughout this book are going to lead to his entire family losing their livelihood and land and being exiled. And there's always kind of a threat of that, which isn't very fun. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. <laughs> it is. He doesn't really know what to expect. I, I left my job Due to many reasons, including stress, um, recently. Including and the threat of your lands being taken from you. Well, so I, t- I totally... If lands are mental health. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's why I maybe empathize with Costas. Like, it's you feel like your life is being controlled by your job. And it's gonna you feel like it's going to screw you over, even though oh. you haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> well, did you slap the law in the face, Madeline? Uh, well, I'm, I'm out of it. So I think that the most punishing thing you can do to the law is to ignore it. (laughs) So yes, I am a rebel. (laughs) Well said. So I do want to talk about magic systems in this book because I find it interesting to talk about this series as a fantasy series, but it's also very firmly a fantasy series yeah just in very subtle ways but there is and we've talked about this and um i think especially our thief episode Mm -hmm. there is just this steeped feeling of magic Mm -hmm. throughout um but it's also rarely seen and the type of quote-unquote magic that we get maybe that's not the right word to use but the fantasy element Mm -hmm. is that the gods do interfere clearly in people's lives and communicate directly with them and we don't get a scene like in the thief where statues literally come to life Mm -hmm. um because the gods are embodying them. Uh, we really, the only moment that we have is when uh, the, the thief, god of thieves. Yeah, the god of thieves. Yeah. Um, I can't remember her name right now. Says to Eugenides, go to bed. Go to bed. <laughs> 
Which to me, that's... But it's also such a powerful moment that shakes everyone mm-hmm. who experiences yeah, it. the God just like kind of appeared. And also holds him up so that he doesn't fall right. off of yeah, the parapet like, that uh, he's jumping around yeah, on. Yeah, physically intervenes <laughs> to keep him from wrecking himself. But as if, as if, you know, the God is like a mom picking up a toddler yeah. and putting them in their pen. Or like picking, it, picking a cat <laughs> up by the scruff of its yeah. neck. It exactly. has that kind of vibe. Yeah, um, but... But Megan Whelan Turner does such a good job of still making these books feel very magical. I I think that it takes a lot after um, Greek mythology with the feeling of like there there are um, supernatural forces at work mm-hmm. here. We don't get to engage with them on a high level, like mm-hmm. but there are deities with personalities yeah. and jobs that can kind of just like pop up and intervene. Like it's and very they are Greek mythology. Invested in yeah, the they human care. goings on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so that's what that made me think of. And I think that uh she does a really good job of keeping that as a through line while still making it feel yeah. like fantastical instead of like, I feel like with great Greek myths, there's a lot more uh, just telling mm-hmm. like this happened. Then, then that happened right. and that happened. Like you don't, <laughs> there's not much yeah. in between the lines. Um, but she of course brings that. I think a really important moment is when we hear the story um, mm. of the uh, what they call like a king of someone who becomes a king of kings, who they also um, say that Eugenides is going to become by mm-hmm. the, uh, the end of his reign, like a great king. Yeah, and the, the, his journey from in the court size from the beginning of the book to the end is from a buffoon to king of kings someday i get emperor (laughs) yeah um but this story is about a young prince who makes a promise um with a goddess to that he will never tell a lie by moonlight and in exchange his olive trees will flourish and he will also be able to effectively rule Mm -hmm. um and he almost tells a lie and it gets thwarted and it becomes clear that the you know, old woman on the road that he was talking to is actually the goddess who was checking on him <laughs> and trying to get him to lie. Um, but uh, that story, instead of feeling like, oh, it's just, you know, being told to us as a piece of fiction, it feels like something that really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's more telling than anything of what a good job Megan Whalen Turner does with weaving that throughout the series. Yeah. And, uh, as an aside, that part when he was listening to the story be told to him reminded me of The Princess Bride because he kept interrupting and being like, not this story, or like, tell a happy one. <laughs> yeah, Eugenides is like, oh, no, this is not what I signed up for. And the queen's <laughs> attendant is just like, be quiet. Uh, just saw the I'm little boy <laughs> being like, is this a kissing book? <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, so I, I thought that that was really well done. We take you now to Kermit the Frog with another fast-breaking news story. News flash. We took a a break in recording. We're picking this up another day. Um, And some uh, information came out that Disney is going to be adapting The Thief and I'm assuming subsequent books for Disney+. Plus. 
which is very intriguing to me. I am so interested. I feel like they're going to give it the Game of Thrones treatment only for a less mature audience, right? I'm not sure. It's So it's not, there's very little information. It's not clear whether it's going to be a movie or a show. Oh, we don't even know what form the no. project is um, taking. It's Disney's live action team is working on the adaptation and the script is from the screenwriter of the Divergent series. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I haven't seen any of those movies, but they did not look great. Yeah. I, I mean, I worry a little bit, especially when a giant, the giant studio uh, picks up a YA fantasy series, because I know that they're trying to do the Harry Potter, the Hunger Games thing. They want that, that uh, money. <laughs> That's what they want. Um, and, uh, like Divergent, there have yeah. been some examples of just like ones that fell through and they didn't even finish the series that they intended to originally. So I just really hope they don't futz it up. Yeah. There's a really funny line in this slash film, um, piece about this. If there's one thing kids love, it's political machinations and intrigue. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they, I'm assuming it's going to be for a slightly older audience. Um, not for kids. No. For YAs. Well, yeah, but I also yeah I wonder I wonder what the what audience it's going to be aimed at because you think of other um, I mean didn't the YA more just- mature shows that are on Disney Plus like um, like the Mandalorian the Mandalorian uh, where it can be appreciated by a range of different age groups but I would say is aimed at adults who also have a lot of background Star Wars knowledge. Um, my, unfortunately, uh, the thief fandom isn't quite <laughs> at the level of the Star Wars fandom. Yeah, I mean, my adult partner pays for Disney Plus pretty much only for the reason that he can watch The Mandalorian. So since that's never going to end, I look forward to <laughs> watching the Thief series on Disney Plus, which we will still be paying for in, what, five years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the, the other pieces, while it's... I've been excited a lot recently because um, Children of Blood and Bone was announced Mm. recently that it's going to be adapted into a series of films, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get really pumped when there are fantasy series I love that are being adapted by big studios who can have big budgets and create these hopefully really nice end products. But... I also feel that in a lot of those cases, it's more likely that the adaptation will be less effective and it will be more about just making a money-making movie. Yeah, I was just... And if you think about what happens in The Thief, like, while I do think it could be a good adaptation, I don't know if it can be the action-packed movie that the studio probably wants without losing a lot of the story. Right, because there's not... The action that... There are very fast-paced and intense just scenes that happen, but that's not most... Remember that breakdown that I read from the, you know, 40% analyzing and talking? (laughs) Yeah, I I can't wait to check out that website. (laughs) Like, there's just not that much actual action, and it it works that way. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a good thing about the books because they're well put together, but maybe not amazing for a TV show for, like, teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. And and I also will say that even if it's not a necessarily a great adaptation, I'll still love getting to see that come to life. Who's going to play Eugenides? 
You know, that's fun casting to think about. To um, about it. Elijah Wood. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's the first name that came to my head. Not who I would pick. No, that would be wild. <laughs> make any sense. He is pretty young at the beginning of He's, this series. Yeah, but Elijah Wood could still pull off young looking. He looks like a little baby fairy. <laughs> Um, I was trying to come up with my own uh, casting choice, but that Elijah Wood mentioned just put everything out of my head. Totally thrown out. And, you know, I'll kind of conclude this breaking news flash with um, even though the Wrinkle in Time Disney adaptation that came out wasn't necessarily what I would call like an amazing adaptation or even a movie that I thought was necessarily like a great film, I did enjoy it. It was still really fun to see the adaptation. Yeah, getting to have that experience of seeing someone's vision for a work that you love is mm-hmm. pretty much always cool unless it's The Hobbit. <laughs> um <laughs> Bummer. I mean, there are disastrous, disastrous adaptations out there. I'm by no means saying that every adaptation has value because I think some of them are actively harmful and shouldn't exist. Right. But more in in a spirit of like when I was really into manga and anime, I would often own the entire series Mm -hmm. of manga, be reading it, rereading it, and yet still watching the anime that was like written by the same people and the same stuff happened, but it was like something I loved in a different format. So I still wanted to consume it. Well, looking forward to it (laughs) at some point before the sun burns out or illness consumes us all. Yeah. Maybe it'll be after the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) What is after (laughs) weeping? Just put a weeping sound effect in there. (laughs) Okay, back to our regularly scheduled episode. Yeah. Animals, just animals, like animals. animals just this animals in this book. book. A lot of angry dogs. Yeah, dogs <laughs> and horse. Is there horse? I can't remember. Horse. Because <laughs> like, usually in books like this, like their horses are important because they're warriors, but I... But we're at court pretty much the whole time. I mean, we never travel in this book, which is fascinating for this series. Yeah, yeah, instead the dogs just get let out over and over again. (laughs) Are there any other animals? (laughs) It's true, yeah. Just the dogs appear as like a cloud of angry plot device a couple times. Maybe there's like a bird that eugenides can see while he's completing one of his little weeps out the window face towards his former home he's he's quite an assassin's creed type character so he really should have like a eagle or a raven or something like that oh eugenides with a pet bird yeah that is something i would like to see yeah it just fits (laughs) it really does uh yeah i guess that's a good segment (laughs) it's hard that they I don't know. Packs of angry dogs always make me upset because the dogs wouldn't be angry if they weren't the humans being... hadn't done something to make them angry. Yeah, made that way or treated that way. They do say in the second the second time the dogs are out that there are 
females that are in heat so yeah. the dogs are attacking each other which does make sense um but maybe you shouldn't keep them in a cloud of dogs yeah like even if the female dogs are in heat like you don't want the male dogs to be attacking each other <laughs> like that's not what you want at all <laughs> yikes just a big old yikes yeah moving on to pretend food there's pretend also food. like nothing <laughs> No one eats in this book. There's very little description even of the food they do eat. Um, but even though we're at court, there aren't, there's no attention paid to the like feasts and events and things like that, which I think is fitting with Costas and Eugenides' yeah. level of attention that yeah. they're paying. Um, Costas is hungry all the time. He almost never gets to eat because after he's assigned to Eugenides, he's just following his whims constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many times where he has to run across the entire like palace grounds to get to the guards' mess. After bathing really fast because... <laughs> Someone's called for yeah, him. He never has time to like sleep, get ready, or eat. He's yeah. always scrambling yeah. and always running across the palace. His steps must be amazing. If only he had an iPhone. <laughs> I um, I do remember at one point he is like it says the food he was eating was probably leftovers, but it was better than what he would usually get. Yes. And we do hear that the food at the guards mess is sometimes infested um that's uh, not great I, I guess that means just like cockroaches or mealworms or yeah, maggots or whatever and you just munch like them up that. extra protein <laughs> munch, munch um there's yeah it's mostly like bread and water um yeah. there is some important wine which eugenides gives to costas at the beginning mm. um after he's been uh locked up to like have people figure out what to do with him after he hits eugenides in the face um (laughs) just without warning great um and eugenides gives him um wine that's not watered down oh yeah um, which he's like very unused to in the first place but then also he starts the book hungry hasn't eaten all day um and then he just kind of spills his guts to eugenides and tells him how much he hates him and stuff and then eugenides (laughs) is Ugh. Then Eugenides is like, you'll be my guard. Yay. Um, there is a lot of discussion of the drugs people put into wine, like poppy juice and lithium. Yes. Um, yeah, there are, there's mentions of a variety of food or drink born poisons and medications and opioids. Mention of how Atolia killed her first husband. Mm. Um, it was, and I remember this, it was on their like wedding banquet, right? Wasn't it like when remember. they got married or like right before or something like that? Um, I don't remember. And so then when she offers Eugenides oh, a glass of wine, I, okay. everyone's like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's uh, some olive talk. <laughs> no, there's really talk about olive trees. Yeah, but yeah. you'd think that for a book that is set in a palace and where we don't travel, mm-hmm. um, that we we'd get a little bit more. Yeah, but it's all like snatching bread. Here, I just I just searched for bread within the ebook. <laughs> He snatched some bread out of the mess. The king wanted his bread sliced, but he couldn't do it himself. Carrying bread and cheese. Cheese. He piled the bread on the stew. (laughs) He sliced himself some bread and cheese. (laughs) Mud for a crust of bread. Yeah. 
a simple hearty fare at, <laughs> at <really> this castle. <laughs> but since our um, point of view is a guard for the majority of the time. Makes sense that he'd be eating simple hearty fare. It does make yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but not too much to say. So let's select our badass ladies and rate them. I wanted to check our previous episodes on the series and see who we selected as our badass ladies. I feel like we've already Um, done Edis and Atolia. I think they've both been covered, uh, but it's okay if we repeat. This series is interesting because I think, I mean, it's obviously written by a woman, Mm -hmm. um, and there is such close attention paid to what it means to be a woman in a patriarchal society mm-hmm. and system. Um, but there still aren't that many female characters, um, even though we're dealing mostly with queens and mm-hmm. they are essentially the like more beloved rulers um, in both Edis and Atolia. Yeah, the male rulers involved are except for Eugenides, um, well, and including Eugenides in this book, are Mm -hmm. just kind of reviled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. And all the baddies are, like, kings Mm -hmm. and um, emperors. Um, But we've already, yeah, we've already given Edis and Atolia (laughs) ratings, but we might need to again. I'm going to bust through the gender binary doors and i'm giving costas the badass lady because i think it's interesting that he's given somewhat of a woman's role yes. in this book 100 um, like he does so much emotional labor yes he is a companion mm-hmm. he's at the beck and call of the monarchs um yeah a ton of emotional labor and he just basically has to put other people's needs in front of his own all the time so like the more i think and talk about it like that yeah. is very much like he's treated more like a maid mm-hmm. um than as like a distinguished soldier yeah i love that great choice Cool. And I am giving Costas a feast oh, <laughs> for his Costas. rating and and days. Like you just get a week of vacation, you eat, you polish your armor, you take a bath, <laughs> you at, take a nap. <laughs> at the one point in the book when he and his best friend, Eris, who he has a very cute relationship with, mm-hmm. um, we're going to go on a hunting trip together. Eris yeah. is almost executed. Yeah. <laughs> Costas has to be involved in trying to stop that from happening. Like the man needs a vacation. I will give my rating... To, um, so her name is Frezine. I, yeah, her name is Frezine. I don't know how to pronounce that. You don't remember, right? I'm just saying it again and is again. It, <laughs> I think that it's like Frezini. Frezini? Because I th- I've thought at first that the narrator was saying Vizzini. Like, I'm waiting for you, Vizzini. I'm waiting for That's Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride. And she is... An older attendant, um, yeah. I think, in like a bit of a motherly role mm-hmm. to Atolia. Yeah. Um, and she pops up a few times throughout the book. She tells that story that I think is like very important to establishing the um, the vibe, the general vibe. <laughs> <laughs> it's an important uh, vibe check moment. Um. And she also is like the only person who overpowers Eugenides at one point, which is by putting True. um 
opium or putting poppy in his food. Drugs. Um, when he has been very badly wounded and needs to sleep but refuses to stay he's in his to bed. prance around on rooftops. <laughs> a little baby. Yeah. Won't do as he's told. Um, and Frasini, I think it's always interesting seeing characters like that who are a bit older and have clearly spent their whole life in, in servitude um, and taking care of someone like Atolia can't be easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to give her like a moment in the sun. Um, and my rating for her is me hoping that where she gets her meals is a lot closer and more accessible than the guards mess. It's a good rating. Um, really focusing on food. Both of her ratings are about food. <laughs> In a food poor book. Um, but uh, can you tell it's almost dinner time? I mean, yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to take us where we're at. And where we're at is, you know, bread sounds good. Right I'm going to eat bread cheese. Yeah. Crust of bread. Yeah. Thank you. So that's it for our King of Atolia episode. Thank you to everyone who has requested Megan Whalen Turner's books. Um, yeah, this has been fun. And we've just loved getting into this series. Maybe we'll continue it next year. (laughs) That's the Dragon Baby's promise. One year from now, maybe we'll continue. And you can count on that. (laughs) Um, We will announce our next book. I don't think we've chosen it yet. Our next book is going to be The Great Good Thing by Roderick Townley. So that'll come out eventually. (laughs) After the holidays. Yeah, we do. We've said this recently. We do plan on returning to our regular schedule of two episodes per month. I know we've been at one per month for a few months now. Um, But yeah, we'll get there. Uh, Maybe in January we'll be able to do two episodes. I think we will. Thank you for bearing with us. Uh, Technical difficulties. Things have been a lot. We've had some like giant life changes, um, but things are settling down will be more settled after the holidays as well so yeah thank you for continuing with us on this journey thanks everyone if you want to see the intermittent things that i post on social media you can follow us on instagram at dragon babies podcast just want to set fair expectations (laughs) um on twitter at dragon babies pod and you can also find our website at dragonbabiespodcast.com. You can send us a message there if you have a request or a question or a comment or anything like that. We love messages. We love them so much. Um, it takes me sometimes six months or more to respond, but we read them as soon as we get them. And we they always brighten our days. Really, really, really appreciate them. So yeah. thank you for your selfless messaging when yeah. you may not get a reply for some time. <laughs> Especially in this time where connecting to people yeah. uh, is just completely and utterly different from anything we've experienced in our lives. That's right. <laughs> so, I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. Until next time. Goodbye. <laughs>